now, this is Box to Box Offside with Rod Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box Offside, where each week we talk to a person whose life has been lived through football, either domestically or around the world. The people who we watch or watched on the pitch or had our heart rates pumping as they describe moments in history. Those who wrote the prose and descriptions of iconic moments and the ones behind the scenes who set the stage for the stars on it. This week, we talk to the man dubbed Captain Socceroo. Just imagine for a moment when Paul Wade arrived in Australia as an 11-year-old, that he'd make 345 National League appearances, play 119 matches for Australia, 84 of them full internationals, play in the Olympic Games, two World Cup campaigns, be named the 1988 NSL Player of the Year, awarded the Order of Australia Medal in 1995 for services to sport and the community, and the FIFA International Fair Play Award. Then, after his retirement as a player, become a much-loved pundit, conduct coaching clinics for children across the country, and be a respected ambassador for disability in Australia. Graham Arnold tried to manufacture something here. Is Lass in trouble? It's given, it's Wade. What a start. Paul Wade, how are you, Wadey? Wow, I'm busy after hearing all the things that I've done. Thank you very much for that information. You don't realise how much you've done till you. Somebody reads it out and then you go, wow, mm. really? I remember yeah. that, but wow, I can't believe that I've done that. Yeah, well, I've got to um, acknowledge it's the citation of your Hall of Fame on Football Australia and Football Victoria's website. And, and just reading through it, it is a, a wonderful reflection on what's been a great life, mate, with, with many years to come. And, and, and as we did research, Michael's going to pick up your football career as we, we go on in our conversation. But uh, one thing that I couldn't find in all of my research was what happened before you moved to Australia. It was almost like you you were born fully formed at the age of 11 when you arrived here. And and there's just no uh, history of of what it was like, um, you know, from when you were born on the 20th of March, 1962 in Cheshire. Um, I've got as much as the fact that your parents were from Barnsley in Yorkshire. Of course, you were a very clever young man. You're a Liverpool supporter. But tell us about... <laughs> <laughs> your, your, your earliest memories as a child living in England before your family came to Australia? Well, apparently, my uh, first word was ball. So I was obviously set mm-hmm. up to do something in football. But, you know, I've just found recently on Google Earth where I lived in St. Helens. It was right next to a pub. And when I look down on it, I look at the – there was the cup pub car park, which we all played on, especially on the weekend when one person had a ball, the whole street joined in. But the other area was, it was, I've measured it, 15 metres by seven. And the number of World Cups that were played there and the number of goals that were missed and scored, I can still remember it in my mind now that that's all we did. We played football. And then I thought, I got the strap at school for kicking a stone around in the playground. The teacher said, don't you do that, you will ruin your shoes. So anyway, <laughs> she went inside and I started kicking the stone around again. She's obviously <laughs> looked around the corner and wrote, right, Wade, over here, six of the best. <laughs> Boy, we knew the meaning of wait till your father gets home, didn't we? So that, <laughs> that was it, it was all football. Everything mm. was football. 
Um, I honestly can't remember whether I was clever or not, but gee, I love football. And and who was that person? I, I know you, you said your first word was ball, but is there someone, was it your dad or a grandfather or an uncle or a neighbour that uh, that encouraged you and, uh, and, and took you to training or how did that start? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I mean, the obvious answer would be my dad or my mum, but I think it was my mates who just wanted to have, we all had great imaginations so that, you know, we'd be playing and we'd be commentating and we'd be faking dives. Even back in, back in the day, we used to throw our hands up in the air, referee, that was a penalty. So that's where the love came from. My mum and dad took us everywhere. There's four of us. And they took us to every sporting event that we were uh, involved in. Uh, but, yeah, that passion, that love came from all your mates. Uh, I never played for a club until I mm. came out here when I was 11. I played for Dandenong City under 12. All mm. we did, I played for the school and I played in the street and that's it. Maybe that's why my first touch is so bad. I should have been practicing more. <laughs> what you said there, that you, you never played for an organised club before you arrived in Australia. And, you know, most kids, uh, I remember the first sporting club I played for was under sixes. So you're 11 years old and, you know, we're pretty similar age. So so your formative years, were, were, there was no coaching. It was just playing in the car park. That was it. Correct. There was, I'll never say, there's a photograph of it now, uh, the back of the pub. There was a little fire hydrant. So they imagine the wall, it's brick, it's about mm-hmm. 10 yards wide and, I don't know, 10 feet high. And right in the middle of it was a fire hydrant. And we used to do things, and the, the car park sloped slightly towards the wall. And mm-hmm. we used to spend hours trying to hit that fire hydrant. So if you mm-hmm. had a shot at it, it would hit the wall and come back. And with my first touch, I had to hit it. So it was just simple things like that. Nobody told us what to do. It was fun. It was, yeah, you're right. It's a good point. I was 11. I wasn't mm. involved in the SAT program. Nobody took, pulled any cones and bibs and balls out. Mm. It just makes me think, wow, I'm glad I was born back in the day because these kids today, they have to, wow. It's not as much fun, is it, really? Well, yeah, it's not as much fun as I recall it playing in the backyard with my brothers and, uh, and on, on our edge as well. But, um, you know, that, that seminal moment when, when you came to Australia, tell us about how, how you found out about uh, the move to Australia and what you, you can recall as a, well, you arrived and you played in under 11, so you're 10 years old at this stage. Yeah, and my, my dad just said, look, we're going to Australia. And you can imagine, uh, growing up in the north of England, yeah, I know Liverpool, I know Manchester United, I hate them, I hate Leeds, I hate them, but where's Australia? And mm-hmm. so they, he showed us a, a map of the world, and they said, you're going there, Melbourne it's called, it's called Melbourne in Australia. I went, oh, and now I was into swimming at that stage. I was really, I could swim for for ages. I had all my badges and and I said to my dad, I said, you know what? I'm going to swim from Melbourne to that little island down at the bottom there, (laughs) whatever that island is. So that's that's as much of an idea that I could grasp from where we were going to go. No idea at all. So, and I'd never forget leaving Barnsley for the last time. Remembering that I'm 10, brother's nine, and I'll never forget driving away and the whole family 
cousins, aunties, everybody. Can you imagine Coronation Street with all the houses <laughs> side by side? It was like that. The whole family came out and they were crying and I couldn't understand why. This was a big adventure for me. I'll never forget waving to anyone or everybody. And now I think that was the last time I saw any of them, which is really sad. Now it makes sense as to why they were crying. As a teenager, uh, obviously you um, you joined, being a, a pom in, in Melbourne, you joined uh, yeah. uh, Doveton Juniors and you're obviously part of that community. But 17 years of age, um, Harry Chalkidis, a very famous uh, name in Victorian football, picked you up and you went to Paran Slavia. And then um, the one thing that uh, people note about your career, it, it's bookended by when you were a very young fella and when you're an old fella, and you do cross generations. So you played with the great Jimmy Rooney at Croydon City and Green Gully, and he would have been um, at the tail end of his career. But he, but I imagine Jimmy Rooney had a huge personality, aura, and everybody just loved Jimmy because he was such a good player. What are your memories about learning the craft in the uh, shadows of Jimmy Rooney at those two clubs, um, uh, in particular, oh, when you're yeah. over at Green Gully. Yeah, that's a, wow, what a memory. I mean, we, we played on Croydon Park. If you've ever been to Croydon in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, in the middle of winter, you can't see grass. It is mud. And yet Jimmy Rooney just floated across the top of it. And if he had a chance to nutmeg whoever was in front of him, he did it. He is not your miserable, hard-working, I'm going to crunch here and there type Scott. He danced, and I just stood back and went, wow, how does he do that? Um, and when they tell you that he's played for the, the Socceroos over 100 times, and you stand back and you look at him and you go, wow, that's a Socceroo. And then he, uh, uh, we finished there at Croydon. He got a job at Green Gully coaching, and uh, he asked me to go with him. And the other moment that I, I remember, oh, in fact, before I do that, go back to Croydon. I remember having a beer in my hand and he came over to me and said, you drink that beer and you will never play football. Well, I put that beer down straight away. I was on the lemonade all the way through my career after that, which was probably worse with all the sugar. But getting back to Green <laughs> Gully, I'll never forget walking from the dressing room to the car. I was walking across a, uh, a gravel car park with no shoes on. Because I just had a shower and I was only going, it was only 20 yards, no big deal. Come here, you. And in his big, broad Scottish accent said, these are your tools of trade, son. You treat them with respect. Don't let me ever see you walking on surfaces without your runners or shoes or whatever on. And I thought, Nobody's ever said that to me before. Yes, these are the tools of my trade. Well, you started to be, you started going okay at that stage, and after Green Gully, um, Brunswick, Juventus, uh, they picked you up, and in 1984 and 1985, it was about that time that Frank Arrock had noticed you, and uh, he put you in the Australia B team. But I want to take you back to the 1985 season with Brunswick, Juventus, with the great Juve, because you scored. You finished second in the Southern Division of the NSL, but you scored both winning goals for Juve against Hellas and Macedonia in finals. 
to win the divisional title. You must have been pretty big back then, and they must have been a lot of fun because they were big games in those days, massive games. What are your memories of knocking over Hallis and knocking over Macedonia in 1985? Oh, we belted... Uh... All right, we didn't sell South Melbourne, but I remember, um, who was it, Brian Brown, he often ribs me about this. He says, without my pathway, you wouldn't have scored that goal, and we wouldn't have gone on to play Preston Macedonia in the next game. Well, I'll tell you what, thanks, Bomber. You got me the ball, but let me finish it off. I've taken a first touch, which was awful, stretched for my second touch. I'm on the 18-yard box, diagonally out on the right-hand side, and with my left foot, I have absolutely smashed it. Now, more often than not, it would have hit the corner flag, but this one sailed past Peter Lormatz into the top corner. And the celebra I just took off. Catch me if you can, boys. And, uh, yeah, once they got me, they jumped on me. It was just the best feeling ever on Olympic Park in Melbourne. And the one against Preston Macedonia was from about a yard and a half off the line. Um, Mickey Peterson, believe it. If you look at their vision, Mickey P handles the ball. It falls to me. I whack it in. And he's he knows he's handled the ball accidentally, obviously. But he's looked over his shoulder to see the referee, whether he's going to give it or not. But we were getting hammered. And uh, we beat them 2-1 in the end, but in the 89th minute. So very, very special memories, really. After 26 rounds... On 28 points, the winner is Paul Wade. This is where your career starts to really crank. And um, obviously, in 1986, um, you get your first full cap. Actually, in 85, you get your first full cap against Czechoslovakia. And then you help the Socceroos uh, qualify for the Olympic Games in Seoul. And then, obviously, there's that great moment for Australian football, which you're a part of scoring the first goal in a 4-1 win over world champions. I want you to talk to me about your relationship with Frank Arok and what are your, what are your memories of Frank and that time playing for Australia? Raven Lunatic was the first thing I thought. <laughs> I just, oh, boys, I'll never forget that sitting there in the St George Stadium dressing room with everybody else. There's a great photo of Gary McDowell's there, Charlie Ankos is there. They're all, we're all sitting there looking at the floor and Frank's there gesturing on the floor at beer coasters. And he was using those to demonstrate, obviously no laptops back in those days. That was his laptop to demonstrate the formation that we were going to play, um, whatever it might have been, probably with a sweeper back in those days. But, and we're all looking confused. And I look at that photo now and think, I was thinking, because I was sitting on, you know, it was like a table looking down, uh, totally stunned, because I was thinking, if Frank Arrock asks me what position I'm playing in, I have no idea what coaster I am anymore, because he kept moving them around to show the movement of the players. And I thought, right from that moment, I, I just, Wow, what is he saying? He says things with so much passion, but what is he saying? Eventually, you work it out. You work out his gestures. He was always holding his watch, his hand. Uh, he always said that he always travels a different way from home to St. George Stadium. 
he was just a thinker outside of the box. He was, um, it, it was, it was walked out of a dressing room in a pre-match warm out, warm up, and he was covered in sweat. He actually got us to believe that we could beat these teams. That if we do work hard enough, we've got to be afraid of nobody. And I've never forgotten that is brilliant. Because everybody else had done the right thing. And, you know, I'm not knocking any other coaches. I mean, obviously, Raleigh Rasic has done some special things. But Frank Arrock all of a sudden signaled to the world, hey, you might be able to beat the Socceroos, but you better be your best when you play us. At that stage, you, you transition over to South Melbourne and the great relationship that you had with South Melbourne, Hellas begins. But also around that time, the national team transitions to Eddie Thompson. Do you remember the first time you met Eddie? <laughs> yeah, it was on the side of the ground when he was coaching Sydney City and I was playing for Brunswick Juventus and he wouldn't shut up. He was in my ear. I'm thinking, oh, I'm glad he's not talking to me like that because there were some pretty experienced players playing for uh, Sydney City back in the day, all Socceroos. But, you know, I don't know. He he was more tactically clever. He He was streetwise. He was, uh, I'll never forget, he absolutely um, slaughtered me in a, in a uh, room one day. It said that I got off the bus like an 80-year-old man and my attitude sucked at training. I was whinging about this and that. Anyway, I was so taken aback by this. My heart was racing. I was just about to give him a mouthful back because I was that hurt. And he said, sit down and sh- shut up. So I sat down. Anyway, he said, look, I can't remember the exact words, but it was just go back to being what you were. The reason I picked you was the captain. So I've walked out of that room with my tail between my legs and I've got back to my room and I've sat down again. I'm still, my heart's racing. I can't believe he's attacked me like this. Next minute, the phone rings. So I pick up the phone and it's the assistant coach. And he said, oh, by the way, Tomo is really going to give it to you in the next training session. And I said, well, you know what? That's his job. I guess, you know, if he thinks that I'm just slacking off a bit, then, you know, that's that's his, that's what he's got to do. The assistant coach had handed the phone to Tomo because Tomo wanted to know what my reaction is because loyalty was a major part of his team structure. And I thought, now that is streetwise. If I'd have gone away into my room and the assistant coach had have told me that, I'm, if I'd have said, well, the guy's an idiot and I don't know how he's a Socceroo coach, I would never have played for Australia again. It was, it was humility, respect and loyalty that Tomo wanted. And um, wow, I'm, I look back and go, how lucky was that? Because if I'd have been in a different mood, who knows? I might have said the wrong thing, but he was definitely streetwise. Did Paul Wade ever get an opportunity to play overseas? Did you ever get an offer from overseas clubs um, during that time that you were doing so well for South Melbourne and the Australian national team? Did you ever get any offers? No. <laughs> in a word, no. I just 
uh, wasn't good. The, the closest I got to uh, playing overseas was when I was 16 on my uh, on my own. I went to uh, Barnsley where my mum and dad had grown up and somebody knew somebody at the club and they said I could train with the youth team. And I stayed there for six weeks training every day. It was the best. Can you imagine a 16-year-old who's playing on grounds with a picket fence around him going to... Um, Oakwell, the home of Barnsley Football Club with massive stands and four floodlight towers and training and having the boots lined up on the, hung on the wall. That was just, for me, that was the most amazing feeling. And I said, thanks very much for, um, Norman Hunter was the, uh, the coach. He said, uh, thanks very much for coming. And I said, well, thank you for having me. I'm going to go home tomorrow. And he said, really? We were going to give you a game. And I said, well, I've got to go. And he said, right, the reserves are playing tonight. Be, be there at six, whatever it was. And I went on against Chesterfield on a Tuesday night, freezing cold, playing as a centre-back on a real field. It was the most amazing feeling. Now, that's not Barcelona versus Celtic, but for me it was <laughs> when I was 16. And the coach, one day the coach, I can't, it was another assistant coach, he said to me, why are you kicking a ball like a boomerang? And I thought, what does he mean by that? He was saying, when you kick the ball, it goes from A to B via C, D, E, just smack it. Just drive the ball in a straight line. So believe it or not, that's how I learned how to pass a ball, being told that it was like a boomerang. Boy, when I came back here, I was striking that ball within my laces. I was really concentrating on how to pass the ball. But, hey, little things that you learn. You uh, spent a lot of time at South Melbourne with Ange Postacoglu and Ferenc Pushkas, uh, that fantastic uh, season that you guys had um, with Ferenc. Um, at the time when you were playing with Ange, I mean, there's been a lot made of Ange's relationship with uh, Ferenc Pushkas, and you had a sort of a, a fly-on-the-wall view of that but um, now that Ange is doing so well at Celtic did you ever stop and think uh, when you were playing with Ange he was going to be a coach one day um, did he have a different sort of approach at, to playing that some of the other players did what, do you, what are your memories about uh, Ange Postacoglu the player and whether he um, was showing sort of inklings of a football coach even when he was playing he was leader off the park when on the park you if you Pick a leader here. Who do you think is the captain? There was no way in the world you'd pick Ange. He was uh, he was relatively quiet. I mean, he opened his mouth. He wasn't a he didn't not as if he didn't say anything, but he didn't go ranting and raving or anything like that. He, you know, he would say things in the dressing rooms. It's not as if we he scared the living daylights out of us either. He would say something quietly, and we'd uh, we'd react, but. You know, it, uh, no way in the world would I believe that what he's doing now uh, when I was watching him back in the day. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. I have been living with a, a dark secret. I've, uh, I've lived with epilepsy all my life. In fact, when I was young, I didn't realise I was having seizures. I'd just be overcome with an aura of loneliness, which is hard to understand. Feeling sick, feeling hot just for 30 seconds during games when I was at school, when I was at work, and I just lived with it, because I thought that's what everybody else did. So anyway, I was having five seizures a day, and I got caught on Channel 7 
interviewing the then captain of the Socceroos. Now, Wadey, it's just been fascinating to sit back and, and listen to, to Edge and you talk about, uh, you know, those wonderful times on the park. But uh, all football careers end and, uh, you know, you went through those World Cup camps campaigns you you obviously had that moment we know so well against uh diego maradona but uh, i'm particularly interested in some of the wonderful things you've achieved in, in your, your career after football uh, everyone who follows football knows uh, the story of how uh, uh, you suffered a, an epileptic seizure on air talking to paul ocon um and uh, and what you went through afterwards you've uh, you've been as much as you tried to hide your diagnosis before that moment, you've gone a whole 180 degrees in the other direction since you're an ambassador for, for epilepsy. And, and I note with uh, some uh, degree of, uh, of uh, pride that you're also an ambassador for, for cerebral palsy. Um, you've done countless interviews and, uh, and, and, and sharing your story to try and destigmatize Stigmatize uh, epilepsy, which you were only diagnosed um, at the age of thirty-three. Um, how, how important is that role in your life to to help to uh, to to ease the path for people who uh, who live with with that condition? Couple of things. Um, in hindsight, I'm glad I got caught on the telly having a seizure after the Socceroos played France in a friendly at the MCG, because that lifted so much weight off my shoulders. It was only my family that knew. I had epilepsy and was having seizures. I was praying that I wasn't going to have one during a game. And I was against Argentina, against Canada. Not full grand mal seizures, but just that horrible feeling of sickness and feeling a little bit dizzy. And you know the other weird thing? It was a feeling of loneliness, which sounds really weird, right? But I felt lonely just for 30 seconds. But that was my brain short-circuiting. And the other thing was, because I was um, the Socceroo captain, because I had to do so many interviews, I'm now comfortable with talking about anything. And so from those two moments that everybody knows now that I have a disorder, which they now call a disease, and that I could talk about it because I've had enough experience answering questions from journalists, that combine the two, and it's easy for me to talk about that now, you know. And and I think back to the days when nobody knew I was not going to tell anybody. It was embarrassing that I had this thing called epilepsy. Uh, as I say, I would pray for two hours on air when I was uh, working on the TV that I wasn't going to have one of these episodes so I felt gutted for Paul Ocon because he didn't know I had epilepsy. He didn't know I was having a seizure. I didn't know I was having a seizure. As far as I was concerned, I'd asked him three questions. But what he heard was me smacking my lips. And I, mm-hmm. answered, I asked him a second question and I didn't give him the microphone. And then he's answering that second question and I take the microphone away. And so I look back and I go, that's why people are so afraid. It is so embarrassing. But once they give it up, once they actually talk about it, it's not that frightening after all. You're not on your own after all. Um, so, But yeah, the stigma that went along with it, well, while you didn't know, it was awful. 
your our favourite uh, Captain Socceroo, mate. You bring so much joy <laughs> and, uh, and fun to everything, mate. Uh, but um, but in, in in all seriousness, apart from the, the funny gags, um, you're uh, you're just a good man and um, and and a wonderful ambassador for the game in this country. And we thank you again for uh, for good on us, you, mate. boys. Keep up the great work. See ya. Please make sure you subscribe to Box to Box, Box to Box Offside, and Stoppage Time wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us on Box to Box at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. And we will be sharing your feedback on the show as we go along. Like us on Facebook. Join us as we always ask you next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.